0: RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and will be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA-regulated entities, such as IFAs, Asset Managers, SIPs and Brokers, TPR-regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to James Parsons for his first appearance on the podcast and returning guest, David Allenson. We are recording today on the 21st of October 2021 with the news once more full of COVID-19 related issues and whether we might be heading for another lockdown. Today, we turn to revisiting some hot topics from earlier podcasts DB transfers or final salary transfers in the wake of British Steel pensions and other issues affecting the DB transfer market. And then we'll look at the Supreme Court decision in Manchester Building Society, which has been subject to some recent commentary from the High Court in a case involving, again, accountants. But before turning to David and James, It's worth also briefly covering some other topics of particular highlights for listeners this month. So first of all, the FCA was considering enforcement action against an authorised corporate director in the wake of investigations undertaken following Woodford. Please do see our earlier podcasts for more information on authorised corporate directors and authorised fund managers. There was also some commentary from the Financial Reporting Council's Chief Executive, Sir John Thompson, on limiting the number of FTSE 350 companies audited by the same firm. A refresh of FOS guidance for distress and inconvenience. We had hitting the headlines the so-called Pandora Papers shining a further light on offshore activities. A FOS consultation paper on temporary changes to reporting outcomes of proactively settled complaints in an attempt to sort out fos's ever-increasing backlog. We also had the FCA confirm it has no plans to restart its second suitability review in relation to retirement advice, having cancelled it earlier this summer. So with the clocks about to go back shortly, another busy month, and another month where DB transfers have not left the headlines. I consciously stayed away from DB transfers, in the summary there, David, but it's fair to say there is a lot going on in the DB transfer area at the moment and a lot hitting the headlines. Perhaps the three most substantive developments being British Steel Pensions, the FCA's wider review of DB advice, and also some disciplinary action involving DB transfer advisors and switches. So David, can you just kick us off with British Steel Pensions and remind listeners what that's all about first?
1: Thanks, Rachel. As you say, it's been an interesting couple of months for DB pension transfers. And uh, as anyone who reads the week that was or who's dealt with me previously will know, I could talk about pension transfers for a couple of hours, probably quite comfortably. So I'm going to keep it quite concise today. But to give some background, the highest profile pension scheme that caused concerns for the FCA was the British Steel pension scheme. Most of the issues we're seeing with British Steel were from around the time-to-choose exercise. Now, what this was, was a process whereby people on the old British Steel pension scheme had the option of transferring to a new pension scheme with British Steel, which they cunningly called British Steel Pension Scheme 2, which had slightly reduced benefits to BSPS 1. They also had the option of going to the Pension Protection Fund or transferring to a private pension. Transfer values were high at that time and a lot of customers chose to transfer to a private pension. In fact, around 8,000 members took that choice and the FCA in general has not been happy about that. So some of the things they've been doing in this area, enforcement action has been instigated against a number of firms along with a raft of past business reviews. Now some of those are led by a skilled person who's been appointed under Section 166 of the Financial Services and Markets Act And a number of them have been instigated by the firm themselves. The SCA estimates that around 1,500 transfers are being reviewed by one of those two methods at the moment. The FCA has also recently run a clinic in association with the Financial Services Compensation Scheme and Money Helper for Steelworkers, and this was based in Swansea, and they held 128 separate meetings with former members of the British Steel Scheme, drawing to their attention their right to complain and the fact that they may have received improper advice. The FCA has also written to members of the British Steel Pension Scheme who transferred on two separate occasions, pretty much giving them the same message that you might want to revisit the advice and consider if it was suitable. Another recent development is that the FCA has started sending out letters on behalf of firms who are actually in liquidation to say that there might be issues with the advice they received, which will probably lead to even more of a burden on the FSCS, who today have paid out around 21 and a half million pounds in respect of the British Steel Pension Scheme alone. We also know that there are around 300 live FOS complaints. So really an area where the FCA is highly engaged and significantly concerned about the advice that members received. Now, what the FCA hasn't done to date is implement any sort of industry-wide redress scheme, or anything specific to British Steel in that sense. Whether or not there are any plans to introduce such a redress scheme is uncertain. The CEO of the FCA, Nikhil Rathi, wrote to MPs in July to state that the FCA was considering using Section 404 of the Financial Services and Markets Act to do exactly this, and to implement a redress scheme. And as some of our listeners will know, the only other time the FCA has done this was in 2012 with Arch Crew. But effectively what this would be would be a process where a defined category of consumers, so in this case, people who transferred from the British Steel Pension Scheme, are written to and asked if they would like a review of that advice with a predetermined method for calculating redress. Then at the end of it, if the advice is found to be unsuitable. Since the Arch Crew scheme, the FCA has preferred instead to use either Section 166 of FISMA for a review or to let a firm complete a past business review by itself. The early indications in July that this was being considered were then moved away from by the FCA slightly later in the summer when they decided that additional information was required to enable them to take decisions about redress proposals. However, a recent development involving the National Audit Office could certainly mean that this option is back on the table. And to me, this is the biggest news that's come out in respect of pension transfers recently. The FCA itself is coming under fire for its regulation of financial advice concerning BSPS. And as you'll have guessed, this comes from the National Audit Office, who are conducting a probe that will cover how the FCA dealt with poor advice specific to BSPS and its treatment of compensation and how this is going to be delivered, along with its plans for supporting steel workers who may have received poor advice. In my view, it's quite hard to see what else the FCA could realistically do to prompt complaints. They've written to customers who transferred on two occasions. They've held specific clinics. And as I'll look at in a minute, there's been an industry-wide review of information and a good deal of enforcement action. However, there are around 8,000 members who transferred and about 1,500 transfers that are under review. And it does seem that the FCA is not going to be happy until all 8,000 members have had their transfer reviewed by someone. And this does lead me to wonder if the only logical step the FCA could be taking next is an industry-wide redress scheme for British Steel. It's really hard to see what the alternative would be to that. So an interesting area at the moment and one which will no doubt develop as things go forward.
0: Thank you, David, for that. As you say, the FCA is doing a whole host of different things in order to seemingly get individuals to complain who have moved out of the British Steel Pension Scheme, or alternatively trying to get firms to conduct reviews, whether that is by reference to Section 166 or a past business review being a voluntary exercise. But they do seem a bit unhappy that perhaps not more people have complained. And as he can redress, and equally perhaps also the government does, and hence why the National Audit Office might be looking at into this. So an, an interesting area at the moment. But as you also mentioned, there is this ongoing FCA wider review of final salary pension transfer advice. Can you just give us a brief history of, of that and where we are at the moment?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, Rachel. A lot of focus is on BSPS because of the political attention that's been paid to this. It's the biggest issue for the FCA in terms of pension transfers, but it's far from being the only issue. To put this in context, in 2017 to 2018, around 100,000 defined benefit pensions were transferred with a total capital value of around 14 billion pounds. That increased in 2018 to 19 to 210,000 transfers with a total capital value of 34 billion so significant sums which really highlight why this is such an area of concern for the FCA especially given their views on the appropriateness of giving up secure income in retirement and again as you mentioned Rachel the FCA has been highly active in this area to start with they've harvested data from the markets on two separate occasions the first information request was sent to all firms with defined benefit transfer permissions in October 2018 that comprised just over 3,000 firms and covered the period from April 2015 to September 2018. The second data request covered October 2018 to March 2020. And just to give you some highlights, there was a lot of information collected, but the FCA, on a review of the information obtained, stated that less than 50% of the advice that they reviewed was suitable. In fact, to be specific, 48% of the advice given was suitable with 22% being unclear. The FCA identified a number of concerns with pension advice during this information gathering exercise and the subsequent reviews. One of the big themes that came out was generic objectives for a pension transfer. So this could be prioritizing death benefits over secure income, a failure to um, obtain sufficient information about a customer, stating that they wanted flexibility and so forth. Really, a lot of these things are more just features of pensions freedoms than they are a genuine reason to be moving away from secure benefits. All of this fed into the FCA's finalized guidance from March of this year on pension transfers. That was published in FG21.3, along with a number of the suitability questions and assessments in the FCA's defined benefit advice assessment tool, the DBAP, which allows customers to review the advice that they were given. The FCA's review has led to a number of changes in their guidance on pension transfers. Now, I don't have time to go into all of these today, but it led to a raft of changes to the COBS rules. And just to show that I know my COBS provisions, the relevant one is COBS 19. Some of the more significant changes included the introduction of an appropriate pension transfer analysis, something that needs to be completed by an advisor when recommending a transfer the introduction of the transfer value comparator, as opposed to just using a critical yield, and a significant beefing up of the guidance on assessing suitability at COBS 19.1.6. So what does that really mean in practice? And what do we think going forwards, I guess, is the next question? Well, it looks to me very much like the data gathering element of the exercise has now been completed with the two sweeps of the industry taking us up to March 2020. The FCA has the information it needs, and it's now looking far more at enforcement and redress than data gathering. The FCA's initiatives grid indicates that they're going to continue their review of pension transfer advice, this being the fourth such review of this kind, for at least another year. So this isn't going to go away at any time soon. And this also confirms that the review will include enforcement and supervisory action we can also expect the FCA to remain vigilant and to complete further reviews. So last month, the FCA announced that it would start a periodic review of redress guidance by the end of the year and would set out their expectations of firms while the review is ongoing. And this will include clarifying how firms should be applying or interpreting their guidance in certain areas. And that largely brings us to where we are at the moment. We've seen significant activity from the FCA in pushing for past business reviews, and that's likely to continue. Again, potentially until all 8,000 of those customers transferred have actually complained.
0: Thank you, David. So we've got the issues, as you say, quite specific to British Steel Pensions, which capture quite a lot of the headlines. But outside of that, we've got the FCA's review continuing into the DB advice market. We've also had some disciplinary action coming out from the FCA. Can you just take us through what's going on there as well?
1: Of course, there's been a couple of disciplinary proceedings published recently, The first I was going to look at involves a Mr. Hussein, who was fined the sum of £116,000 by the FCA and banned from working in financial services for providing, in their words, reckless and unsuitable advice. And he advised 620 people to transfer a defined benefit pension in circumstances where it was often unnecessary and not in the customer's best interests. And the transfers in this case were made into unregulated mini-bonds, which the FCA views as high risk. An important point to take from this, and this is something which was in the FCA's finalised guidance, Paper 21.3, is that when you're advising on a pension transfer, you can't just consider the transfer in isolation. You have to also consider the receiving products and whether or not that's going to be suitable. Otherwise, it can tank the entire transfer and you could be held responsible for all of the consequences of that and find yourself having to pay redress based on the benefits under the seeding scheme. It's important to remember with this one that the FCA specifically found that the advisor was advising people to transfer against their best interests. This goes beyond just giving poor advice. And this is reflected again in the second decision I wanted to look at, which is from August of this year, where another advisor, Mr. Armin, was fined $1.3 million, so significantly more than Mr. Hussein. This sum, in fact, representing the significant financial benefit that he himself had obtained from advising on transfers. He was described as seriously incompetent when advising on defined benefit pension transfers and had not been conducting his business with due care and skill and had not been complying with regulatory requirements. He advised on 422 transfers, including 183 from the British Steel Pension Scheme, which, as we know, is a clear red flag to the FCA. There was also a very high conversion rate for the advice. And another point to highlight from this one is one of the points raised by the FCA was a failure by Mr. Armin to obtain sufficient information to give a personal recommendation. And this is another thing that runs through the recent finalized guidance. An advisor has to obtain enough information about an advisor's circumstances in order to recommend that they transfer their pension. Otherwise, that's likely to lead to, at best, a finding that there are material information gaps in the advice and at worst, a finding of unsuitability. So enforcement action is starting to be published, and I think we can expect more of these in the future.
0: So you've taken us there, David, through the FCA's action in various forms, the changes that have happened over the last number of years in relation to Cops 19 and the rules in relation to DB transfers. And you've also touched upon the disciplinary action that the FCA is taking. So where do you think this leaves us? And where do you think we're going with the DB market?
1: It's an interesting question. To tie it back to something I was mentioning earlier, I don't see how the next step that the SCA could take would not be some sort of uh, industry-wide redress scheme, I think specific to British Steel. They've done everything they can really to try and prompt complaints in that area, and a large number have come forward. But there are a lot of people who still haven't made a complaint not just from British Steel, but the wider population. And that could be for a number of reasons. A lot of people, I think, will be happy with the advice received and taking capital over taking income. But the FCA itself seems to be coming under significant pressure, which we can see from the National Audit Office's attention. And they might feel compelled that they have to do something. I think we can probably see an increase in firm-led past business reviews for those who can afford it. I think there's going to be further Section 166 reviews of defined benefit pension transfer advice. And in terms of where this leaves the market, as we know, Rachel, and I know we've discussed this on the podcast before, there's a significant hardening of the PI market in this area. And it's increasingly difficult for firms who give defined benefit pension transfer advice to obtain insurance. That means that fewer and fewer firms are giving this advice. I think the numbers have halved since the high point when there were around 3,000 firms doing it, which is just going to make it harder for people who can have a valid reason to transfer their pension to receive advice because a lot of people just won't touch it now. So there's potentially some harm to consumers by how far the FCA is taking this. And it's high profile enough that I think that most people who have a genuine issue with the advice they've received will be aware of their right to complain. But as demonstrated by the FCA's targets for the next couple of years, we're going to be dealing with this for a while going forward. And recent changes to how the FCA calculates redress, so, for example, you have to factor in advisor fees going forwards as a matter of course, mean that the sums at stake could potentially be higher than what they were previously. So I suspect we may well be talking about this on the podcast again in six months to a year.
0: There's a cheerful thought for us all at the end there, David. Um, The DB transfer market is a very interesting area to look at just in terms of what the FCA is doing, what perhaps it's been forced to do. And what's going on in terms of the squeeze on advisors it's quite an interesting case study even if it is quite difficult for the market itself so moving away from the db area we're going to now turn to james um so we had a look at the manchester building society case a few podcasts ago And now we've had the decision in Knights and Townsend Harrison. This is understood to be the first case since Manchester Building Society, or let's call it MBS for short, um, looking at the Supreme Court decision and what the Supreme Court said in MBS. So for listeners, can you first, James, just remind everybody about the facts of MBS?
2: Thanks, Rachel. The Manchester Building Society judgment has been a hot topic of discussion for professional service firms, their insurers and lawyers since it was handed down in June this year, with its potentially far-reaching impact on the application of the Samco principle, which the court has applied to determine whether a particular loss falls within the scope of the duty of a professional. Samco was decided by the House of Lords in 1997. The Samco principle required consideration of whether the professional service involved the giving of advice or information. If the professional service was found to be a so-called information case, the defendant could limit its exposure to the consequences of the information being wrong on the basis that the information is what the professional was responsible for, as opposed to all of the consequences of the claimant entering into a transaction as a factual consequence of proceeding with that particular transaction. This is what the court has referred to as the SAMCO CAP. And applied even if the claimant's case on causation was that they would not have entered into the transaction if the defendant professional provided the correct information. In other words, if the loss would have occurred even if the information was correct, the defendant professional would not be liable for the claimant's loss. The facts in MBS are complex, but generally the Supreme Court had to consider whether auditors or accountants were liable for the costs of a building society extricating itself from the interest rate swap contracts with MBS having incurred costs of around £32 in doing so. MBS entered into those swaps in reliance on incorrect advice that its accounts could be prepared according to the hedge accounting method. MBS had to extricate itself from the swaps after it developed insufficient regulatory capital.
0: So you mentioned there, James, that this has been a hot topic of discussion for professional service firms, insurers and their lawyers. So what was the key finding in MBS that has caused such an interest?
2: I think there were two key findings from the MBS judgment. Uh, the first was that it effectively downgraded the application of the SAMCO counterfactual I mentioned before and the practice of distinguishing whether the professional was providing advice or information as a tool to determine whether the loss in question falls within the scope of the professional's duty of care. The advice information distinction was said by the court to be too rigid and had the potential to mislead, with many cases falling in between the two extremes of being purely advice or purely information. Instead, the court confirmed that the focus should be on identifying the matters on which the professional person has undertaken responsibility to advise and, in light of those matters, the risks associated with the transaction, which the advisor may fairly be taken to a duty of care to protect the client against. The court confirmed that the extent of a professional's contribution to the decision-making process determines whether the advisor has a duty to protect the client against a full range of risks associated with a potential transaction, or only against some of those risks. In doing so, the court has downgraded the application of the SAMCO principle to a useful cross-check in most cases, but stressed that it should not be regarded as replacing the decision that needs to be made as to the scope of the duty of care. What has sparked debate in the wake of the judgment, is the guidance on the analysis of a professional scope of duty in the form of six questions to be considered when a claimant seeks damages from a defendant in negligence. The Supreme Court judges did not unanimously endorse the six questions, but did agree on the application, or rather the disapplication, of the Samco principle and the ultimate decision reached in applying the law to the facts. The key questions relating to the scope of the defendant's duty are the scope of duty question and the duty nexus question. Questions two and five of the proposed assessment. The scope of duty question requires consideration of the risks of harm to the claimant against which the law imposes on the defendant a duty to take care, while the subsequent duty nexus question asks whether there is sufficient nexus between a particular element of the harm for which the claimant seeks damages and the subject matter of the defendant's duty of care, as analysed in the scope of duty question. This, in essence, requires the court to consider the purpose of the scope of duty, what risk the duty was supposed to guard against, and whether the loss represents a fruition of that risk. Applying this to facts in MBS, the Supreme Court found that MBS's loss in extricating itself from the swaps was within the scope of the accountant's duty to M- MBS, as the purpose of the accountant's advice was to permit MBS to decide whether it could use hedge accounting to implement its proposed business model within the regulatory framework. The accountants wrongly informed mbs it could when it couldn't and so the resulting loss in unravelling that model was the responsibility of the advising firm thanks
0: james for taking us back through what is quite a complicated and long judgment in mbs so as i mentioned knights and towns harrison is what we understand to be the first case looking at the mbs findings and the principles espoused by the Supreme Court in MBS. So before we get into the nitty gritty of how the different factors were assessed in Knight's, can you just give us a bit of an outline of the facts?
2: Sure. So in Knight's, um, this also involved a claim against accountants, but the facts in this case are different and simpler than the background of the MBS case. So Mr and Mrs Knight's were directors and shareholders of Evergreen, a company which sold decorative artificial plants. The defendant, Townsend Harrison, was a firm of chartered accountants which acted as accountants to the Knights and the company Evergreen. So the accountants introduced the claimants to several promoters of tax avoidance schemes and a potential investment opportunity, with a claim arising when two of the three schemes that the claimants entered into were successfully challenged by HMRC, while the investment opportunity turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. For the introduction to the promoters of the avoidance scheme, the claimants alleged that the defendant owed a duty of care in making the introductions and that it also owed a duty of care and respect for the advice it provided on that. The claimants alleged that the defendant agreed to carry out due diligence on the investment and advised on it and owed a duty of care in this respect, but failed to do so properly. The defendant denied the allegations, claiming it acted only as an introducer and therefore owed no duty of care to the claimants in relation to the schemes or the investment. It relied on its terms of business limitation of liability letters and engagement letters to argue that it was not engaged to, nor was it able to, provide advice in respect to the schemes. The defendant also denied that it had a duty, either under common law or on contract, to carry out due diligence in respect of the schemes or the investment.
0: So we have a dispute over the scope of duty. What were the court's findings?
2: So the court dismissed all the claims. The claims in relation to the tax avoidance schemes failed on duty, with the court finding that the defendant did not owe a duty of care not to introduce its client to an unsuitable scheme. Those claims also failed on breach and causation, as the court held that the defendant did not provide negligent advice on the schemes, and the claimants had not demonstrated that they would have opted against participating in the schemes if so. The court attached particular importance to the defendant's limitation of liability letter, which outlined the risk of the avoidance schemes and the fact that HMRC could open an inquiry to challenge them. The claim in relation to the ill-fated investment also failed, as the claimants failed to establish a duty of care, breach and causation. Key thing to note from this case is that while the claims were dismissed on all grounds, the court suggested there may be circumstances in which an accountant, in introducing a client to a tax scheme in the context of an ongoing professional relationship, may owe a duty to not introduce an unsuitable client to an unsuitable tax scheme. The court also held that there may be circumstances in which the nature of the relationship between the accountant and the client requires the accountant to proffer advice in relation to the tax scheme and the implications of entry into the same. The court confirmed that this was dependent upon showing that the circumstances were such that the accountant had assumed responsibility for such matters, which would in turn depend on whether the accountant reasonably foresaw that the client would rely upon him and whether the client did reasonably rely upon him. The facts and evidence in this case did not give rise to such a duty.
0: So where do you think it leaves the principles the Supreme Court set out in MBS?
2: This case uh, turned heavily on its specific facts and the judge put heavy emphasis on the witness evidence of both parties at trial, as well as the contemporaneous correspondence, particularly the limitation of liability letter issued by the defendant. It's important to note this is a High Court judgment, so it does not impact the approach to the scope of duty issue addressed by the Supreme Court and MBS. But it's certainly interesting to see how the court has considered the MBS approach and applied it. The court considered the MBS six-question approach to determine whether the loss suffered by the claimants would have fallen within the scope of the accountant's duty. The court suggested that the MBS approach would apply when determining the scope of duty of care, as it had done so in the context of distinguishing between advice and information rather than whether a duty of care existed, which was the key issue in this case. The court found that the claimant's loss would have fallen within the scope of the duty of care, with reference to the duty nexus question, and referred to the Supreme Court's clarification that one must look to see what risk the duty was supposed to guard against, and then look to see whether the loss suffered represented the fruition of that risk.
0: So as you mentioned at the outset, James, MBS has a wide impact on professional service firms generally, but where do you think this decision Knights leaves
2: accountants? As with MBS, the Knight's decision is a reminder of the need for accountants and indeed any professionals to clearly establish the scope of the instruction and their responsibilities in their engagement letters to their clients. There is a more specific issue to consider from this case though, the court held that a duty of care could exist for an accountant acting as an introducer to not introduce an unsuitable client to an unsuitable scheme in certain circumstances. So, it will be particularly important for accountants to take this into account when introducing clients to potentially risky avoidance schemes in the future.
0: Thank you, James, and thank you, David, for your contributions today. RPC Radio. Radio. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.